Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And I'm pleased to welcome to the show for the first time Ellie Steinberg, or Steinberg a writer, columnist, PR professional, Hasbro expert uh, who writes about the intersection of politics and anti-Semitism and is often quoted as... Uh, defending the Jewish people, particularly the Haredi community, from misquotes, misunderstandings uh, of the uh, omission and commission part. Ellie, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you, Michael, for having me and for that uh, very generous introduction. So uh, you're also described as a political conservative, but I don't want to talk exactly uh, on topic of politics, although New Jersey politics has become particularly interesting as of late in the last couple weeks. Maybe we'll get to get to, get to that. But I do want to get to the core question of one that you uh, talked about at the recent panel in the Agoda Convention. I was in Israel. I didn't get a chance to attend in person, but I did watch uh, the video together with Yossi Gestetner and Haskell Bennett. I want to start with the basic question for you. Does the Haredi community get a bad rap when it comes to the public sphere, when I mean the media, in politics, or in general? Yeah, so um, that's a great question, Michael. And um, I, th I think it's, it's pretty simple to see. It's, it's clear for anybody to see who, who does pay attention to this space that we do get a bad rap um, in, in the media, generally speaking. Now, there are a number of reasons um, why this can be. And um, all of these reasons um, manifest themselves and manifest themselves a little bit differently. So you have simple misconceptions um, that do take place um, when there are people in media who are covering stories um, that relate to our community and they're simply not familiar with us um, and how things work in our community. And um, whether we're comfortable with it or not, we, we are different um, than the, the um, broader world that is out there. Um, I remember one time I was speaking with a, a, a very, um, very a, a tremendously talented and great, great writer, a New Jersey um, writer, about some stories he was doing um, in the Lakewood community, um, and he had written a number of columns, and I was talking to him, I said, like, people need to, um, reporters need to, need to understand when they, when they look at us, um, we're very easy to otherize, meaning we, we necessarily walk around being different, right? And when that happens, and, and I think the way I, I, I described it to him, I said, you know, we're, we're the guys walking around wearing the black hats. Um, and, and when that happens, it sort of sets us, sets us apart from the rest of the world, and it makes it very easy for people who are not a part of our world to relate to us differently than they would relate to people who they identify with. And that takes us to this, this unfamiliarity that um, reporters w would report, even not from malicious way, uh, space, they'll, they'll report on us differently than they would report on, on, on communities that they do identify with or feel familiar with. Um, and then there's, there's sort of that lumping of everything together in, in the firm community that people will stereotype 
and um, um, paint with a broad brush in ways that they would never do to other communities. So, so these are, are, are some, and there, there are more obviously, but these are some of the, the reasons why um, we do tend to have um, and get a, a bad, um, uh, not get a fear shake in the media. And the one before I, I wind up that answer, the, the one thing that I think we touched upon a lot at the, the convention, which I think is important, is that there's, there's a part of that which is um, a bit of our, our own doing, um, which is we allow ourselves at times not to get the representation that we need in media. So you'll have reporters who are looking at a story, uh, looking to do a story, and they look for, they're looking for someone to give them comment, and they'll get stonewalled. And when that happens, so the people who are um, bad actors and have malicious intent towards our community, and the world is, you know, the world does not lack for that, um, they'll be there to give comment. And the stories that the reporters are ready to write are going to get written. And if we're not there to tell our side of the story, then the stories will be written in a way that aren't accurate and do, don't do anybody um, any, any, um, any good. Okay, there's so many follow-ups I'd like to get to on that. Uh, number one, I guess, I would just, as a comment for myself, uh, as somebody who's been around media and politics for so long, and I, I tell a lot of people, no comment is not always the best comment. I think that's our knee-jerk default reaction for most people if they ever have a reporter uh, call them it's always going to be well no comment and as if somehow that is going to prevent a story from getting written and I, I'm glad you brought that up because it definitely does not uh, but I, I, I want to start with a question that so many people ask me and about journalists and I, I think that there and this is a something that's gone probably changed over time as we've kind of had this concept of the mainstream media and the bias within the mainstream media. But don't, by and large, the assumption is that people who are paid to professional journalists, don't, don't they have a obligation and a duty? And in, instead, I would say even an inclination. They have an interest in getting things right uh, without bias and without ignorance, although uh, we see so many times, particularly even reporters who cover our community on a regular basis, uh, whether it's in New York or the New York suburbs, often have uh, are not willing to learn enough of the community from the inside. And they're just not willing or they don't have a long enough tenure to actually learn the community from the inside. And I don't even know if that's something that can be fixed, but wouldn't do we ascribe to them? Uh, nefarious motives or malicious motives or do we really just feel like somehow they're just not willing to do the hard work or there's nobody to work with them in the community? I know it's like a bunch of questions right at you on that, but they all have a similar theme. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think I think it, it really goes to um, uh, kind of the state of media today um, and the the fact that, that a lot of the way the media has approached I mean, generally, um, the way media broadly has approached this mission that that the press is supposed to occupy um, in 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 the in the country, 
um, to be consumed with sort of clickbait and the bottom line and not um, really reporting out the stories that are are of interest and and for the 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 public good and the public and the and the, pub, the true public interest um, as we've seen newsrooms um, sort of get decimated because of the way this business model has changed it becomes more and more difficult to expect especially take take a place like New York um, where it's you know the multiculturalism in, in New York is uh, there's very few places like that in the world and to have an expectation of a reporter to be able to report on the you know whatever block of the of the city they're assigned to and to have a really deep and intimate understanding of every part of the commu- of of the city is really not realistic um i've found in dealing with again generally speaking and um in, in dealing with reporters that for the most part and you know in a different conversation we can go through the names of the exceptions um to this rule but for the most part reporters it's okay to name names really so you don't have to worry yeah. <laughs> um that'll be for a follow up okay um <laughs> a follow up conversation <laughs> um but the the um but for the most part they're looking to get the good story and and they're looking to report accurately um and and at times it's it's hard when you know when they're up against deadline and there's a lot of nuance that they need to to learn um and know i mean i'm thinking now off the top of my head i'll give you one example which i think the audience will appreciate um i had um over here locally in the um great um jewish metropolis of lakewood um, I had a, a local reporter um, once reached out to me because there was somebody who was trying to um, push push this reporter to do a story about um, private school admissions in Lakewood and um, people who were were trying to get this reporter to do a story about like as if there was some massive conspiracy to keep um, a certain person's children out of school or or a certain type of person. Um, and the reporter, the reporter started asking me, like, you know, what, what's what's going on? Why are they telling me this? And and can you explain to me what's going on? And and the, I, I realized then because that that the reporter was missing one fundamental um, bit of information, which changed the entire uh, uh, framing of the story for the reporter, and that was the simple fact that. Private schools in most from communities, and especially in Lakewood, are entirely decentralized, and every school is an entity on its own, which is at the same time um, trying to make their existing parent body happy, um, balancing their um, responsibility to the broader community and to their bottom line, um, among a whole bunch of other sort of considerations, which changed the entire frame of the question that the story was based on because the reporter just didn't have that simple bit of information. And I couldn't fault the reporter for not knowing that even. Right. So they, they tend sort of to in think, a roundabout way. They, yeah. A lot of reporters tend to uh, equate Jewish schools with Catholic schools because they're both religious schools and because Catholic schools are so hierarchical and 
uh, all within a diocese. They say there must be they must be extremely similar. But uh, and, and and not just and not just about schools, right? I mean about about everything, everything about um, how sort of rabbinic um, rabbinic positions like sort of have like some there's this conception that there's some sort of you know top down um, rule in the from community when anyone who knows anything about the from community knows like how <laughs> how um, uh, you know how sort of um, um, decentralized everything is and 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 how much of a meritocracy. Um, things really are to that end. Um, so, so this is where where it becomes difficult to have an expectation for a reporter to to actually be able to 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 have that news if we're not there to help the reporter um, fill in those blanks. Let me uh, switch gears for a second. I guess from the let's knock the journalists uh, type of thing, but I, I let's talk about maybe a core issue from your perspective in dealing with reporters. Why is it that the outside world finds the Haredi world so fascinating? Uh, I, you know, often even the most elementary aspects of it, of our everyday life, uh, and the more insular, of course, the more fascinating, uh, I find, that many outsiders are just enamored of it. And we see that in popular culture these days, that, you know, these, whether they're movies or, or documentaries or books that come out about the Haredi world, uh, they get consumed, uh, and you know, some of them ha- are totally are wildly inaccurate. Let's put it that way. But yet they get consumed uh, by it. Is I guess two, a twofold question: Why is it so fascinating? And then how does that fascination lead to some of these misconceptions? Because people they 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 don't get the full they they can't grasp nuances, of course, from their cu- mere curiosity. So, Michael, let's let's um, uh, let's be honest here, right? We are fascinating. Um, we're, we 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 are the um, sort of the prototypical sort of people who are you know standing at the word history, history yelling stop. Um, we we have this real old time traditional value set that stands in the face of everything that the world is you know careening off the cliff on, and we're. Um, uncompromising in face of that. And I, I remember a conversation I had um, a bunch of years back with somebody where he told me, um, you know, like we needed to appreciate how much um, our existence is, is challenging to people and challenging in, in, in the fact that they, they, feel, they feel judged um, there, there are people in the world who feel judged by our existence in not going along with, you know, society at large just because society is going um, in a certain direction. So I, I, I really believe that this is true, that, that we are, you know, we are interesting. Um, now, how much of that plays into the, into the, um, the misconceptions that... Um, that um, pop culture and 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 um, you know the like um, end up um, perpetuating about us. Um, I, I think they go you know one with the other. Um, think about take any minority community that um, you're unfamiliar with. Um, if somebody were to tell you a sort of two-dimensional or one-dimensional. Um, take, were to give over to you a one-dimensional take about this community, 
how much of it would you not believe? And how much of it would be validating to you about what you always thought about them from your surface look at this community? And that would make it sort of compelling content for you. People don't enjoy being challenged. People enjoy having their, their conceptions affirmed for them. So if, if pop culture and media um, comes along and gives this sort of surface look of like, oh yeah, here's this weird Jewish community, um, you know, they're backward Neanderthals who are out of step with, with the world, and here's a story about how, you know, they are the way you think they are, oh, how quaint. Um, for sure, uh, you know, people, people will lap that up. If you're going to start now coming with this, like, no, there's like this, this is the value set. Um, this is what they're really about. Here's a story about a typical family that, um, what do they care about? Um, well, like a typical Haredi family, they care about their family and they care about their shul and they care about their community. And, um, yeah, here's, here's some show that's going to win a bunch of awards. You know, it's, it's not going to translate. Right. So they do go hand in hand. Sure. Okay. I, I want to get into a practical or two practical questions. Actually, we'll go with a practical question, then a political question, as we're almost out of time here. Number one is correcting the record. Okay. I think that's a really important part of what you do and what some others uh, like you who are out there on Twitter and elsewhere with the columns and writing and, and speaking with reporters, correcting the record, how important is it? How does one, how do the people at home sitting there thinking that they're outraged by some of the things that might get written, what do they do about it? How do they do something about it? Yeah, so like you said before, um, I think it's important if, if, if anybody ever finds themselves like in, the, in a situation where, um, you know, where reporters asking for comment, um, that that's the the simplest and most straightforward thing to do is you know provide them with with the comment that's accurate that's that's fear and that you know answers the question that they have um, now when when these sorts of um, negative stories or negative uh, misconceptions take hold um, you know and, and I said this by by the convention as well. You know, I enjoy watching when when someone like Yossi Gestetner um, throws in that um, you know that tidbit of data, which um, which makes the 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 the, the um, makes the life of the person who's perpetuating um, the, this uh, this 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 unfair narrative just a drop more complicated. You know, that's always a great thing. If there's data, if there's a data point, if there's something that's that's solid that you can point to. You know, you can always, you know, you can always, you can always bring that to the to the attention of the reporter. For the most part, except for again the the, the bad apples, they're interested in hearing it. And there's always place for that sort of um, um, reaching out and and letting them know that that they're getting something wrong. Um, again, for the most part, in my experience dealing with reporters, they 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 do. They do want to get things right, and there's, there's really little um, a reporter um, doesn't doesn't enjoy more than if they filed a story and it was inaccurate. Right. Because right. you know, that's something they filed. That's something they're gonna have to live with. So reach out to them directly. Don't call their editor or call uh, or call the, somebody else to try and find that out. I mean, I think social media is a great tool for that. Right. 
Yeah, so social media, um, social media is, is, is a great tool um, because for, for, for the most part, um, not for the most part, but to a large extent, a, a, a platform like Twitter really is the place where a lot of news professionals are active. And they 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 push their work to each other. That's really what it what it really is. Um, and they the narrative forms there. So again, the the caveat of of social media being the um, sewer and the cesspool of what it is, the utility of that cesspool can't be ignored. Okay, so, Ellie, I want to. I, I yeah. know out of time. I want to give a straight political question because I think I just the audience needs to know uh, what happened in Lakewood with regard to the gubernatorial endorsements. Okay, the VOD went endorsed uh, Phil Murphy, the incumbent. The community voted the other way. Certainly out of character. Although it's happened before, it happened with Chris Christie and John Corzine. But uh, is that is that the going to be the norm or is it a departure from the norm as a conservative and a keen observer of New Jersey and Lakewood politics what is your interpretation so um, I, I I um I for in um, taking a step back on this question full disclosure I voted for Governor Murphy and I did um, I did write write in a column in, in Newsweek about why I felt it was right for people to vote for Phil Murphy. What we had in Lakewood was a very interesting um, um, confluence of a whole bunch of things coming together at the same time. Um, people um, really are very, um, were and are very um, scared and nervous about um, what they saw across the river in New York um, with the sort of um, you know biomedical totalitarian state that um, took hold in the way the governor dealt with the community. Um, and they saw the difference between that and the way Governor Murphy dealt with us. And that, I think, is why Governor Murphy was able to actually perform better in Lakewood than, say, Joe Biden was. Um, and why he performed better in Lakewood than he performed in the rest of Ocean County. Um, that being said, there, there are a number of local issues that um, played into um, um, Jack Chitterelli's, um performance in Lakewood. Um, he was very, very active um, in Lakewood in the sort of boots on the ground campaigning, which cannot, you know, as any political professional will tell you, um, is really where, you know, that's where the races are won. Um, and um, he, was, he was very, he invested heavily in Lakewood. He spent a lot of time in Lakewood. And that's really a, he talked directly to to, um, to to some people in the community over and over and over and over again, and that that made a difference. That made a difference, and in 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 bringing his sort of vote total um, up to where it was, where where it was almost like the rest of Ocean County, which is the uh, sort of red. Um, dot yeah. in the middle of, uh, of the reddest uh, county of, of in the Virginia. in the state. Yeah. Well, I, not the reddest, but the source of the lar the largest number of Republican votes in the state of New Jersey. The Republican engine. Yeah, I, I, I think he won. I think he won Ocean County somewhere like seventy to thirty, and Lakewood sixty to forty. Right. So. Okay. Ellie Steinberg, Hamaturgeman on Twitter, a writer and columnist, uh, explores the intersection of uh, anti-Semitism and. 
uh, and politics. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for giving us the opportunity for the bonus question as well. Hopefully have you back in the uh, near future. Thank you very much, Michael. It was a pleasure. So as we close off this week here on Spin Class, a couple closing comments. Uh, Number one, the salty language. I guess salty would be an understatement somewhat that uh, President Trump used against uh, former Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, former President Trump, former Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, Apparently the bromance has been reported by Barack Raviv. Ravid of Axios is not quite what one would have thought it was. And uh, I think the real takeaway is not that he said F him, is more that he said that Netanyahu and Israel were not interested in peace. Uh, I find, find it to be uh, somewhat offensive and you know a little bit of a juvenile understanding of the Middle East that somehow Trump felt that Abbas was a well, no, nice guy and somehow he was more interested in peace. Uh, he only kind of Help Bibi standing within the Likud, which uh, I think standing up to Israel, uh, sorry, Israel standing up to the U.S. is a little bit of a badge of honor over there. But, you know, kind of as uh, Matt Brooks said of the RJC, a little bit of a nothing burger. We haven't heard that term in a while. Uh, bottom line is President Trump was possibly the most pro-Israel president that we can remember uh, since probably since Ronald Reagan and perhaps even exceeded that metric. So uh, for all in all, whatever that personal relationship, uh, whatever the expectations were behind the scenes, uh, if you haven't seen some of that uh, that Axios podcast, definitely take a look. It is absolutely fascinating. Uh, number two, Mark Meadows, the first uh, White House, former White House chief of staff since the Watergate era to be held in contempt of Congress, now a federal criminal referral, but the text messages that he turned over were quite remarkable, including one from Donald Trump Jr. imploring, telling Meadows, instead of calling his father directly, he told Meadows to get the president to stop the mob. Uh, Quite remarkable, I guess, the context. The raw footage is always so interesting. You know, these behind-the-scenes text messages and emails that people think will never see the light of day, but when they finally do... They are quite fascinating. Obviously, there's context to everything, but I think that there's no question that the whitewash out there with regard to January 6th as we come up on the anniversary, um, you know, let's just call it for what it is. Uh, these are extremists in the same way that they're extremists on the left, they're extremists on the right, and we have to deal with them and we have to prosecute them as we should Uh, Once again, bad strategy, I think, by the House Republicans in not participating in this uh, committee, not having a seat at the table, not having a voice. If you're Republicans, you basically ceded that entirely to the Democrats and to Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who clearly you don't like. And uh, why let them have control of the narrative? This is a little bit of a drip, drip, drip in the bad way. That doesn't mean the Republicans won't take the House next year. But it does mean that these drips of information, and there might be more and more coming, are going to are somewhat damaging for certain voters. Uh, you know, as you said, the one congressional Republican who was not named texted Mark Meadows and said, it's really bad up here on the Hill. The president needs to stop this ASAP, fix this 
now. And the one thing also that we have uh, have definitely noteworthy is Republican governors right now, uh, war for Republican governors between the two wings of the party. Charlie Baker, who was the odds-on favorite to have another term, immensely popular in Massachusetts, probably the only Republican who could win in Massachusetts, is not running for re-election because he has a Trump-backed challenger. Uh, Georgia is going to be a food fight between David Perdue and Brian Kemp, entirely over the 2020 election, which is crazy, as well as Idaho, where you have Republican infighting for a primary there. Uh, you know, Idaho probably will not be lost to the Democrats, but Georgia very well might be because of this Republican primary. Uh, Andrew Cuomo ordered to return his $5.1 million for his book. I don't know if it was all paid out, but clearly uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, not seeing uh, all that much uh, from all that much love from uh, the former levers of government that he used to control in Albany. And we'll end off with a thank you, a thank you on behalf of the community to Mayor-elect Eric Adams, who is adjusting the time of the inauguration and swearing-in ceremony on January 1st, which of course is Shabbos, usually at noon, traditionally at noon, changing it to the evening to be after Shabbos in Brooklyn so that Shomer Shabbos his summer side of supporters and others can attend. Uh, others should take into account that kind of thing. It is most welcome, most uh, big thank you to the Adams administration for doing so, so that those of us who observe Shabbos can attend. I'm not saying I am going to attend, but they're out there in the listenership can attend. So thank you for that. That's it for this week here on Spin Class, here on the Nakam Single Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week. Oh,